Hi there. Here we are again. Welcome to another Dishcast, another one broadcast from both Provincetown and this time in San Francisco, from San Francisco as well. Not much to report here, except rather sad, but also kind of weird and almost uplifting news about my little dog. She's had three legs since I got her when she was roughly two years old, we think. She was hit by a truck when she was a, a puppy. And she has been amazing for the last 10 years or thereabouts that we've had her. No problem at all. No one even notices she has three legs most of the time. It takes them a while. But the last couple of weeks, she just started to give out in the back. And I, she's every now and again, this happens, but this seemed to be more serious and it, it is more serious. And so we're grappling with the fact that her back leg is not really working anymore. So we, it's, it's, she can now walk a little bit. She can walk to the door. She can walk around. She can get down the stairs a little bit. She can, she can get out to pee and stuff, but she can't really get much further than that. So yesterday was the high comedy of trying to get her into a, 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 a chariot, as it were, which to put it mildly, did not go well. <laughs> she's like, what the hell is this thing? Get it off me. And she's amazing. You know, the amazing thing is I'm having all these issues about it. I'm, I'm, I'm emotional about it. I, 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 I had a cry once about it. She's, you know, she's very, very dear to me. She's just been close to me for so long and she's suddenly frail and feeble, even though she's not really. And her attitude is like, I don't care. Just take me up, bring, carry me up the steps this time. And I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll ease into the wheels. They say it takes them some time to get adjusted to that idea, but boy, did she not like it yesterday. Anyway. All that by and by, um, that's the that's the mood I'm in. And she's she's doing great. She's doing great otherwise. I'm sure those of you out there who have tripods are going to now tell you the dish. And I'm sure we'd be delighted. If you have any, you know, any suggestions or hints or tips of dealing with a dog that, that is disabled in the back, by all means, send it in and we can we can we can air some stuff on the weekly dish as we always do. Give you a heads up about who's coming up on the dish cast. We have Josh Barrow coming on. He's going to, we're going to devote the whole podcast to the Biden administration. And Josh is a big fan of the, of the Biden administration. One of the few sort of mainstream journalists that just says, yay, in a pretty straightforward and honest kind of way, not a kind of creepy Jen Psaki or, you know, Jennifer Rubin kind of official propagandist kind of way. But he's, he's, he's brilliant and fun and so on. And Michael Moynihan where we talked about god knows what we talked we talked about oppenheimer we talked about poppers we talked about communists we had a really wide-ranging conversation it just happened yesterday but it's going to be broadcast it's it's pretty timeless it'll be broadcast soon and then uh oh yeah i uh vivek ramaswamy who started bombarding me with emails and books and goodness knows what like months ago and i was just like oh anyway He's going to come on. I uh, figured, why the fuck not? Let's, let's, let's talk some stuff over with him. But this week, someone very different, Lee Fung. Now, is that the right way to pronounce it? I hate... Yeah, that's right. Okay, good. All right, there you go. And in England, they have this, you know, we have... We, the, the Americans always try and make foreign words a little weirder than they actually are. Like, like they, for example, in, there are no, you know, it's not Andrew Wang which is the way the English would say it. it's Wang. They, they try and make it sound slightly. And the same with the French words. They always weirdly emphasize the last syllable. So it's not bourgeois, it's bourgeois. Anyway, 
Li Fang is he's an investigative journalist, is a reporter, and has been and was a writer for The Intercept for many years, and recently left to launch his own Substack, which you can see at lifang.com. And he's a man, I would say, of the solid left, but more of a Bernie left than an AOC left, I think one would say. But, but we'll get into some of that later. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Andrew, thanks for having me. You know, I've been a fan of yours for a very long time. So this feels like a long time coming. I feel like you were one of the first blogs I started reading as a teenager. Oh, so really? Is great. Yeah. Those are the days. Blogging was just like this just weird thing. It was, it just gave you this extraordinary reach suddenly without having to go through all the layers and layers and layers of editing and publishing and owners and fellow staffers and all the stuff that I had grappled with at the New Republic for a long time. Suddenly I could just write whatever the hell I wanted. It was hugely fun. And, and I think we all miss those days really, but maybe they're, they're, they were just naive early salad days. We didn't know quite what that medium was going to do to us all. Well, but it comes full circle. I'm on Substack now. No editors, no <laughs> filters, no you know, foundation or whatever folks to tell me what to write or not write. So and that's a, I'm basically blogging. Yeah, no, and same here, of course. It comes back full circle to the Substack model or to some kind of self-publishing model that can actually pay you a living. And tell me, Lee, where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born and grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland. That's a suburb east of Washington, D.C., Father lives in Greenbelt, mother lives in Lanham, a short walk away from each other. And yeah, it's it's kind of a typical suburb in many ways. The proximity to Washington, D.C. is interesting. I could jump on the Orange Line and get downtown very quickly. And that, I think, really shaped my perspective growing up. Because if I would perhaps grown up in Omaha or El Paso, the same opportunities wouldn't be there. The same kind of very political environment wouldn't be there. It's a little bit more of a, of a working class area of Washington, D.C. You know, something like six of the 10 wealthiest suburbs in America are in the D.C. area. And that would not include Prince George's County. It's places like Loudoun and Fairfax and Montgomery County. But Prince George's County is, is a little bit more of the, the working class, middle class county in the D.C. area. And it would be racially, it would be, it's, a, it's a solidly African, a lot of African-Americans in that, in that, in that part of the, of the region, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, I grew up at the very tail end of a court-ordered desegregation plan. So to get into the Talented and Gifted program, they would bus you to a different part of the county. So, you know, I was going to schools in elementary and middle school that were something like 80% African-American, really no other Asians or maybe one other Asian, no other mixed race Asian-Americans. And, you know, the county for hundreds of years, majority African-American, really did not receive African-American political leadership until the early 90s. Really fascinating history, and it's been propped up in part by federal government jobs. You know, the IRS, USDA, other government agencies have placed their headquarters or their offices there. So it's been kind of a beneficiary of the federal government as well. And what did your parents do? My mother was a teacher, and then when my when she was pregnant with my little brother, she went to law school. She, was, she practiced for a few years. And my father is an immigrant from China. He immigrated in 1980. He did not go to middle school or high school or attend college in China. You know, my, uh, the Cultural Revolution 
was a big part of his upbringing. You know, his father, my grandfather, was a scientist, an academic, and he was accused of being a, a Western supporter or Western really? spy for attending Jesuit school. And he was kind of paraded around and, and denounced. So your grandfather actually was one of the classic victims of, of the Cultural Revolution, that, that his own students disowned him or, or mocked yeah, him. his own students and colleagues denounced him, you know, prayed around, really kind of vilified my family to kind of show solidarity with whatever kind of communist demands that were happening at the time. My father was sent to a work camp in, on the border with Mongolia where they, he dug ditches for a number of years. He, he got to America later on and late in life and went to a community college, went to college. How did he, how did he get to America? Was it an asylum case? No, he, he came over through, I think, some type of family sponsorship arrangement. And I don't, I don't want to get this wrong. I don't know the technical designation, but we had one wing of the family migrate in the 1950s. I see. Uh, we we're not really close to, but that's how we kind of, I think they got the, the spelling of Fong, F-A-N-G, because and, you know, in those days, I think it was typical to kind of misspell these Chinese names. And that family became very westernized, very Americanized. And later on, helped my father's wing of the family immigrate. So, you know, they arrived in the 80s, went through this kind of shock of the Cultural Revolution. So they're, they're very different culturally and personality-wise from the other side that came over in the 50s. Fascinating. And, and did that affect their politics and their, their cultural views? I mean, your father was a, a scientist, but presumably that must have made him, you know. Well, no, my father was an engineer, but he, he hated that. His, his father was a scientist. Um, oh, okay. No, I meant your grandfather. Yeah. I, I forgive me. That 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 that, and and so your 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 father, as opposed to your grandfather, was he influenced by that 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 record of horror that that your your grandfather had to go through? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, he's they don't enjoy talking about the experience. It was like kind of ten years of of psychological torture, and sometimes you know some some physical aspects too incredibly traumatizing. I think there's a whole generation of Chinese people who went through similar experiences who just simply don't talk about it because it's it's too painful. But it certainly affected his views of the Communist Party in China, of the importance of political liberty and, you know, kind of just being able to be free and not be controlled by the government. I mean, they're, they're not particularly political people now, but, you know, it certainly affects how they view the world. Yeah, of course. Just, I mean, in those kind of regimes, just wanting to do your job as an engineer or a scientist is, is, is not enough. And, and, and I think the psychological stuff too is, is just, I mean, we don't think about it that often. I mean, God knows what's happening in North Korea on, on those kind of lines, but the, the impulse to grab someone and not just like deny them a future in their career or not just even send them, but to publicly humiliate and ridicule, to bring them out, to have this kind of Cersei Lannister moment where it's it's a strange part of human psychology that that kind of requires that. Yeah, I mean, it, the, you know, there's the kind of need, I think, to purify sometimes in any kind of extreme political movement to create a Manichaean worldview of good and evil, to take to need a boogeyman, to need a scapegoat. And there's incredible power in ostracizing 
the alleged enemy. You know, it's of course very dehumanizing to whoever the, the target is, but I'm sure for the, you know, the Red Guard or the youth that were involved in this, this was perhaps euphoric, you know, it was, Do you know- it was probably very empowering for, for the mobs that were destroying their teachers or their doctors or, you know, their for 10 minutes, yes, for 10 minutes, the thrill of seeing people who had authority over you be humiliated is, is, is huge, whether in the long run they, they figure that out. Do you know, I mean, to what extent has the current communist dictatorship, do you think, sort of marshaled those forces to using in ways that previous governments could not, social media? Because it, it, the, the ability of social media psychologically to torture and to enforce, I mean, when I, I say psychologically, to punish to alienate, to demoralize is, is, is extraordinary. It's like you have a constant assembled mob just waiting for a moment to be set alight. Well, I'm of two minds of this and I, you know, I don't, I've, because of my journalism, I've written a number of articles critical of China, of, of prominent Chinese people. So I, you know, I don't feel comfortable traveling to China. It's been a very long time since I've gone. Mm. From, but from what I gather, you know, the technological advancements have made some of this kind of, you know, policing by proxy, you know, having your neighbors inform on you or neighbors denounce one another a little bit less necessary, mm-hmm. perhaps, you know, having algorithmic uh, AI based hmm. policing of people, of, of, of identifying potential dissidents by their speech patterns, by what they're saying on Chinese social media, by their movement the surveillance state in China is very strong and they're able to squelch potential critics and identify potential dissidents very rapidly and sideline them or, you know, control them in in some other way. So, you know, know, we we see kind of these comparisons of Xi Jinping with Mao that, you know, he's creating this cult of, you know, of a powerful leader that he's having people memorize his his speeches, that the the party is, 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 is encouraging people to you know, by many, many books, just kind of venerating him as a great leader, which is, you know, different from the, his most recent predecessors. But the need to kind of create this revolutionary moment, like in the Cultural Revolution, which Mao used to silence his um, political critics within the party leadership, I don't know if it's necessary now. You have the technological tools to do it in a much more subtle way. And those tools, of course, are available to anyone. They're, they're part of the technology itself. Um, so, even if someone doesn't articulate specifically a political position, say, it is possible to tell from who they link to, who they've retweeted, or where they have been and visited through algorithms where their politics might lie. Is am I? Is that yeah overly I, I, paranoid, I mean, or is that exactly what's going on? I mean, Bloomberg and the Journal have done great stories showing the kind of reach of the surveillance state. I mean, it goes beyond that too. I mean, there are. Wiki, when WikiLeaks revealed the diplomatic cables, you know, of all the American embassies, it showed that American intelligence officers were monitoring the expansion of the Chinese surveillance state and showing that, that they were even developing gate recognition to recognize someone's movements, to identify them personally. Gate as uh, in that, G-A-I-T? Yes. Good Lord. And <laughs> and during the, you know, just pa- after the Arab Spring, when there was some concern that these movements would spread to the east. There were some reports that Chinese technology surveillance was recognizing certain words, terms from speech recognition technology, and people were using them on the telephone. 
So, you know, I mean, this technology, again, you're right, exists all across the West. It's just a political will, whether governments will use them or not. What about when private companies use them? I mean, there's, and and, and to what extent, I mean, you, you were one of the recipients of the Twitter files. At least you were part of that project of examining it. What did you see in that process that was similar to but or or different from what you see in something like the Chinese government's ability to for, for example the people can you determine pretty quickly whether someone where someone is politically just by watching their algorithmically what they're what they're doing online in terms of say tweeting or or responding to tweets or even just looking at tweets well you know i've I, I definitely want to hedge before comparing no, <laughs> American I, social media with with China because it's it, it is a world of a difference. While there might be a little bit in, in the middle in terms of the Venn diagram, the U.S. enjoys dramatically more freedoms. No, than China, I, obviously. I but. mean, I'm just mean the techniques available if they were to be used because what what you saw, for example, there were some elements uh, in the U.S. government that wanted to shape discourse about COVID in its, in its early origins that, 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 that clearly wanted to direct its message in as effective a way as possible to find the right people to spread it. And this was done not out of some nefarious attempt to you know, get into everyone's brain like some totalitarian government, but to, to push certain narratives against other narratives. And it looks as if Twitter did in some ways respond to governments requests for help in that respect. So that's what I'm talking about. How effective can this be in terms of actually shaping debate in the US if, 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 if the companies themselves in some kind of cooperation with the government wanted to, wanted to figure that out? Yeah, so Twitter collaborated with, the both, with both the government, private sector, and these kind of quasi-government NGOs on many different controversial topics, COVID being a big one. And there's there we could see from the internal tools, there were a number of kind of algorithmic or bot-based applications that were invisible to the average user, user, but would shape their experience on the platform. And that's making certain types of content that discuss a certain hashtag or you know their sentiment analysis, looking at a discussion around COVID using a certain type of word that was de-boosted not just banned or you know deleted off Twitter, but just made less visible. So maybe you were making a certain critic critique of lockdowns or efficacy of vaccines, and you could see your own tweet on your own you know screen. But your friends, your family, your extended network would be very, very unlikely to see uh, that content. And you know that's kind of a subtle manipulation of the conversation that you know we've seen in other topic areas but certainly applied to Twitter. The other kind of, one of, one of my Twitter file stories was just taking a look at how the Pentagon, the military, had created a vast network of fake accounts, of accounts that seemed like, you know, regular people in Yemen, in Iraq, and Syria speaking Arabic to create kind of like a false discourse to advance pro-American military narratives. Now, a lot, you know, a lot of different organizations attempt to do this, that, you know, to create these inauthentic conversations, to create the appearance of public support for their public policy or political priorities. That's, you know, again, that, that kind of gives, that, that goes back to Twitter kind of enforcing its own standards. They claim to be against this type of 
platform manipulation, but they certainly gr- allowed it for certain groups and organizations, for example, the military. Is there any way around that? I mean, do you, obviously, it's, it's, everyone agrees that there should be some things kept offline, child sex, for example, some ghastly murders or, or, or some, some stuff like that, or some obscenities, some level of pornography that is just beyond depraved. But at, at, after that, how do you not in some way enforce some kind of narrative if you are not just going to allow a complete free-for-all? Look, I, I don't know of the appropriate, you know, guiding force for these platforms, but I think there would be greater public trust in any of these platforms if there was just a little bit more transparency into how these decisions were made. Mm-hmm. And you have a big political question that that has no objective answer. I mean, there, what's the objective answer around what we should do in Ukraine? What's the objective answer around what is racial justice? What is the objective answer about where COVID came from? You know, these are political questions where we're still, as an open society, working through the possibilities and trying to come up with an answer. And, and, and different answers could, could mean different things to different people. And the technology itself, by incentivizing certain kinds of behavior, certain kinds of speech, is also, it's not just a passive part of this. It's also an active engager of it. In some ways, it, it may make the discourse almost impossible to regulate because it becomes so polarized that the scope for compromise becomes vanishingly small. No, that's right. And, you know, unfortunately, and just as a, I guess, a byproduct of human nature, the most emotionally arresting and kind of tabloidy headlines and images tend to be the type of content that we like to click on and engage with and often can misinform us. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I just kind of, I feel uncomfortable with encouraging any type of broad censorship on any kind of sensitive topic. Well, I, I would prefer uh, a more robust media. More speech is better than less speech and more, more high quality reporting is better than letting someone in a you know, some government office in Alexandria or some, you know, trust and safety office in San Francisco decide what's true or not. You know, we've had the last 20 years as the collapse of the advertising model in American media. So we have tens of thousands of journalism jobs that have been lost. So as people lose the ability to seek basic information about their own community, about big, big questions in society, about issues around war and peace or COVID policy, they can't turn to, to journalists because the journalists have been laid off. They turn to these platforms that are trying to micromanage and, 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 and come up with answers in the most cost-effective way. So that's turning to government. That's turning to these kind of nebulous NGOs. That's turning to these kind of overstretched, you know, they've got these tiny teams of trust and safety workers. They don't know what they're doing. You know, they're coming up with answers on the fly. I would prefer, you know, look, look what's happening in Australia. This is something that's been proposed in the U.S. and in Canada. It hasn't gone very far because of the influence of the tech lobby. But in Australia, they have forced the big tech platforms, Google, Facebook, Twitter, and others, to negotiate with publishers and share part of the advertising revenue. That's allowed hundreds and hundreds of, of reporters to be rehired at big newspapers and big broadcasters in Australia. So you have you have more sources of information. You have more high-quality reporting. Let the people decide once they have high-quality options for news. So what, in where, America, it's the, it's the other way around. Right, but the other part about the American press right now, however, is that it's not always the reporters seeking more transparency. There, there are, no. <laughs> this is the great paradox. You, you would imagine that 
whatever else journalists have in common, whatever ideological differences we may have, we all want more information and more transparency. And we always want uh, the unpopular view to be aired. At least that's, I mean, that's just my gut instinct as a journal. I don't know why you go into this business of unearthing information if in fact half of you wants to actually bury information for the public good. It's just, you're in the wrong job, it seems to me. But So how do you account for that? Because that has happened as well, right? Well, you know, my suspicion here is that it's a bit of a class issue, not, not entirely, but mm-hmm. that's one issue driving it. And that, you know, to go into journalism over the last 20 years, you had to take these low paid starter jobs that paid sometimes literally nothing or next to nothing and grind it out for years until eventually getting a job. Normal middle class, working class people can't afford that kind of career path. You end up having kind of an Ivy League prep school educated elite that occupies a lot of the main journalism jobs. And those people from that class tend to have a mindset that is very anti-free speech, that is that is very partisan, that is much more left-wing in, in certain respects, that fears, you know, kind of vulgar content online, that's, that sees it as, you know, their duty to, to call for more censorship on these platforms. I look into the background of the main reporters at the big outlets that day in and out call themselves disinformation reporters and, and demand more censorship. They tend to be more upper class people. Uh, I don't think that's the entirely the, the reason. There's, there are a couple other motivating factors. A lot of the, the big journalism jobs, uh, a lot of these career paths are also backed by foundations that are kind of anti-disinformation, pro-censorship, you know, Open Society, Soros Foundation, Ford Foundation, Omidyar, which funded my previous job. They're obsessed with disinformation. They finance a lot of the journalism fellowships and, and that get you kind of into these jobs. So if that's your kind of ideological milieu as you go into the mainstream media, as it were, that's why we disproportionately see so many journalists that are not like the kind of classical journalist mindset of you know more information, revealing secrets, that's better. Instead, you see this kind of school marm you know, obsession with reporting bad speech and, and shutting down speech as their top priority. I, th- I, I think this is a big dynamic. It doesn't account for the entire reason, but I, I kind of see it as, as one subject. And this part. is a point you've been emphasizing in different contexts in a way, that the class, if you just looked at things a little closely, has a, has a much more predictive power than identity. And in fact, what you sometimes see is a strange confluence of the, 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 the entrenchment of class consciousness which is given a patina of progressivism by being obsessed with race, gender, sexual, sexual orientation, gender identity, all the rest of it. That, that, that in fact, those places that you talk about, which are actually suffering, you might argue, and in part from a class-based skew, do not see themselves in any way that way because they think of themselves as diverse and progressive and because they have so-and-so numbers of African-American staffers and so-and-so numbers of, you know, Asian staff or whatever else, right? That's how it works in a way that, that, that you disguise the class, the class structure through the, through the multicultural anti-racism diversity industry. Yeah, for, for I think for lack of a better term, and I, I hate these terms sometimes because people can pick them apart and, and, and apply their own meaning. But broadly speaking, 
neoliberalism, you know, a policy that's more free market, more pro-business to advance those kind of policy goals in more democratic or liberal areas of the economy or, or areas of the country. They've used kind of identity as a smokescreen to manipulate people, to get them to ignore certain ill effects of, of certain policy prescriptions, of certain class effects of, of a certain form of politics, and to focus on race, to focus on identity. Because, you know, just as I think the same corporations and special interests attempt to mobilize public opinion using, when, when appealing to more conservative parts of the country, they use religion, appeals to authority, uh, appeals to, you know, veterans and, and police, the, the kind of, you know, channeling their advocacy around the, the conservative value structure. When the same policies, whether those are, you know, deregulation or tax cuts or other forms of privatization are marketed to more liberal areas of, of the country, that's where you see the relentless focus on race because it kind of appeals to the, the liberal value structure and often muddles the issue. When people here on, on the left hear uh, appeals based on race that, you know, if you support X policy, you're supporting uh, diversity or you're supporting a historically disadvantaged group or what have you. There's, it's kind of like a, a mental shortcut. They, they stop thinking about the actual implications of that politician or, or that policy. And that's that's the point I was trying to really figure out reading some of your your work on this because I, I want to I want to kind of nail down the moment when because it it seems too pat to me to say that manipulating or trying to obscure this it it it's 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 it it could just be a genuine thing that they're blind to some extent as we all are to our own class privileges let us say well um, I should say that there's I'm drawing a distinction okay. I think the average person is well-meaning, it's good intention, that, that wants to help. Everyone sees themselves as a good person that wants to help their neighbor and help people who might be perceived or stereotyped as, as disadvantaged. I, I don't see that as, as a, a form of manipulation, but I do think there are political operators, there are lobbyists, there are politicians that see this, this value structure and seize upon it in a predatory way. That when Uber runs television ads in California against, you know, we, we had a big proposition here in California a few years ago that, you know, attempt to roll back the ability for drivers to organize their own unions to receive minimum wage. When Uber ran those te television ads, encouraging people to support their position on the ballot initiative, they used the NAACP. They said, this is what supports Black and Latinx drivers. If you support this, you know, you're, su you're supporting our... our, our communities of color they're used they, in that case and in many others whether it's the pharmaceutical industry the real estate industry and, and big banks they're again the the folks who are engaging in the advocacy the lobbyists the politicians the the consultants they're the cynical manipulators the average person who are receiving this message you know i i think they're well-intentioned it, it i wouldn't call them manipulators but why why would they not just be making arguments directed towards particular demographics, arguments that are essentially economic arguments, but dressed up with some sort of appeal to, as you said, like veterans or, or appeal to Asian Americans or appeal to Jewish Americans, for example. I mean, in some ways you could say that neoliberalism, just let's, let's, put, a, let's put a word in its favor <laughs> for a second. I mean, it, 
if I look at, for example, what neoliberalism did to the UK, which was, you know, what it definitely did was encourage in ways that its proponents didn't really want to happen, social revolution as well as an economic revolution, that it empowered people of whole variety. It broke down class barriers. It created a mass immigration, created a kind of multicultural society. It was it, it, it coincided with and seemed to be integrally related to, for example, things like homosexual rights. In other words, you can see that, let me put it this way, at a gay rights march, a pride march, you will have JP Morgan have a huge <laughs> damn float. It's kind of absurd in, in, in so many ways. And in fact, the corporate pride stuff is at this point beyond cringe. Now you can look at that two ways. These crafty bastards are manipulating us by appealing to us. Or you can say that for so many long, we were not allowed or even regarded as viable objects for for, 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 for propaganda or corporate advertising and marketing. It's an achievement. It's an achievement in a market democracy to be a demographic that is flattered and pandered to in a way that's not manipulation, it's actually success. Well, I, I guess it comes, I'm, this, my critique comes from a particular perspective and it, it might be also a generational thing. You know, I, I grew up in an era where these rights had already been won or were just on the cusp of being won. And when I look across the U.S. economy and, and certainly others, I see a civil rights issue that's essentially class-based, that your zip code and your parents' education level and, and job is what decides your future for too many Americans. I don't see you know, sex or gender or race-based restrictions as particularly limiting. I'm, I'm sure there's, there is discrimination in major institutions and organizations of varying types. I'm, I'm not denying that, but I'm, I'm saying what's the overarching barrier for human progress in the United States, largely comes down to class. If you're, you know, if, if you're growing up in a low-income post-industrial part of Ohio versus, you know, one of these wealthy suburbs in New Jersey, your life choices are wildly different, no matter what your race is. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is either. If you're if you're gay growing up in in a in a post-industrial, bombed-out looking town in Ohio versus a gay person growing up in a wealthy suburb. You know, again, your your life choices are radically different. It comes down to class. And you are right in some ways that by constantly thinking about these identity questions, it is easy to just forget the class, the classrooms. And it's also possible, by the way, Lee, for someone like me, a recovering neoliberal, who for, there there are there are moments in history when certain kinds of policies might be preferable to others. And timing is everything. And I have definitely, for the last 20 years, understood that what neoliberalism in some ways is a victim of its own success, creating inequalities that could not be sustained, that would undo itself and needed government or or, or politics to come in and correct this, this market dynamic. And when you look at the world today, as you say, that's what I think is is true too. So why why hasn't this worked? Why why have the Democrats, for example, the the party you begin it by the way, are you interested in what's going on a little bit on the right on some of this stuff? If you if you read Compact magazine or you, you read someone like sure, Saurabh yeah. Amari. Uh, I'm who, a big fan. Well, the, <laughs> well there you go. I mean honestly the, this is an interesting moment in some ways, right? Because there are elements of the, I won't call them Trumpian, but definitely post-Trump right, that are moving quite clearly towards a, social, a socialistic view of the economy and of, and of politics. Yeah, there's, I mean, I've 
covered politics for the last 15 years. I've never seen anything like it, you know. Did you see Marco Rubio's latest tome? I saw that just came out, which apparently endorses a lot of these critiques of neoliberalism that are rooted to some extent in socialist critiques of capitalism. I didn't read the tone, but I I watched his policymaking over the last three or four years. You know, this is obviously diametrically opposite of what Rubio, the Tea Party leader, mm-hmm. uh, from when he first got elected did. So, you know, you do want to view any of this with a little bit, one degree of skepticism. Is this, you know, just opportunism or is this a genuine kind of evolution in, in ideology and understanding kind of the pitfalls of the traditional Republican Party? But look, during COVID, when Rubio was proposing payroll support rather than this extended unemployment structure that we tried in America. I mean, that's, that's basically what Elizabeth Warren wanted. That's what they did in Northern Europe to keep everyone employed, just but cutting back their hours. And in, in fact, you know, it, just, it seemed to make a lot more sense, even from a kind of more principled conservative way, because rather than dumping people on, onto the unemployment roles, it kept people employed, which can be very good psychologically. It doesn't, you kind of skip all the paperwork of, of having to fire and rehire people. This, this was a big progressive solution. And it was it was pretty much just Rubio, Elizabeth Warren, and a few others supporting it. But it's it's also true, is it not, that that you're rare in as much as you see people on the right adopting your ideas and you're actually psyched that this is a good thing. Whereas the way we are now is that people on the left will see someone like Marco Rubio and that will immediately render these ideas toxic. In other words, you, you've also got to have a more principled than polarized perspective on this to see the advantage that there, there, there is. There, there are two types of politics, I guess I'm saying. One is purism and, and, and polarized purism. And the other is this, well, if they agree with me on this, let's do this. And it is true, is it not, that like in ways that have not been true in my lifetime, there is a consensus, like huge infrastructure spending. No one was really against that. The the massive funds to, to stimulus get us through COVID, no one really opposed that. Yeah, we could make criticisms that it was too much, or blah, 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 but it's in the essentials, no, we, we became more collectivist. Yeah, you know, sometimes I, I, I think about this, there's part of me that hates seeing the silly culture wars that both sides equally engage on, endlessly discussing sometimes the most trivial of, of issues. But at the same time, you have to look at the big picture on, on fiscal policy, on economic policy, now on trade policy with delinking with decoupling with China. You see this broad consensus that was unfathomable not that long ago. And do we need the culture war sideshow to distract from the great realignment of like broad centrist policy? I, I don't know. Yes, maybe, we maybe do. It's necessary. We have <laughs> we have websites to, to 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 fund, and that's also another thing. We 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 have journalism that's desperately trying to survive, and in a ways that has not been always true. And in desperately trying to survive, they tend to have a rather passive view towards their readership or their their listeners. In other words, they they're desperately trying to give them what they want as opposed to what they think is true or what they think should be said. And that that creates a kind of captivity there too. Well, is, is journalism getting worse and Congress getting better? I, I don't know. That's a weird dynamic, but <laughs> I have to recognize it. When you see so many Republicans, Ken Buck, J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, taking on Silicon Valley, taking on the rail industry, talking about taxing stock buybacks and holding Wall Street a little bit more accountable. I mean, this is this is more than just a nudge to the left. This is a, a big leap. It is. Even Mitt Romney kind of, I mean, Mitt Romney as governor did a lot of progressive governing and, and had a detour towards the Tea Party, but maybe he's coming back home. The party's more 
finally returning to its well, more equally, moderate roots. Well, equally, if you looked at Boris Johnson, you saw suddenly the Tories do not care about spending. <laughs> Let's spend and borrow a huge amount. The, the bill is coming due right now, but nonetheless, there was that moment where he sensed, no, the last thing we want to do is, 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 is unsettle people. If we're going through Brexit, if we're going to do this huge cultural, psychological thing, let's just, let's just throw money at people at the same time. And, 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 and I mean, he didn't really have any principle <laughs> behind any of this in the first place. But it was fascinating to me to watch Toryism move into its older Disraelian position as the noblesse obliged towards the masses, needing to create that up aristocracy mass connection well, even, even if it's not principled it should at least i mean politics is about pragmatism it's about winning and you know i, I look at the 2012 election between obama and romney if obama had just i mean if romney had just adopted some more populist economic positions in the midst of a recession talk a little bit more about trade like trump did in 2016 talk a little bit about rescuing those rust belt states you know i, I could see a different resolution of that election and and, and trump kind of pivoted in ways that he needed to to win the election, whether he believed in it or not. What made you in the first place a believer that class was the most important thing and that and that and that your position in that was to was to support redistribution of power? In other words, a sort of rather classical left position. Was there, was there some person in your life or some point in high school or university when that became your your inclination, or was it just doing the work that you do? Uh, could you unpack that a little bit? It's always interesting why someone sort of ends up with the politics that they have. Well, in terms of my upbringing, perhaps that had a, a small role. You know, I, I and growing up, I grew up around a lot of impoverished working class African Americans, a lot of wealthy upper middle class African Americans, and that seemed to have their their class position seemed to have a dramatic effect on their future in life. Going into kind of, a, I, I started my career in more center left and left wing spaces where class would swapped out with race, and I would be surrounded with by people who went to prep school, who summered in Europe, who went to Ivy Leagues. I'd be the only public school person there, and they would, you know, talk endlessly about race, but be completely cut off from people who actually came from a different class position. I remember my first jobs in Washington, D.C. at the Center for American Progress and others, and people would, set, would, would, would preach and be incredibly righteous about their progressive values and then off the cuff say, well, I would never get on the green line. I would never get on the orange line. And, you know, that was kind of code for that those are the, the working class. Those are the, the more crimey trains to take. I would never touch those. And it's like, I don't know. I there's also I, I a way in which yeah, I would be disgusted too. There was also this that's 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 a syndrome too with the not so much you could make arguments to and fro about policing as such, but the the level of insouciance towards the possibility that what they were doing might lead to more crime, that what they were doing in maybe demoralizing some police departments or in validating violence against the police would actually redound to more people being killed and not just and not them being killed but the people living in neighborhoods that are already besieged by crime would get killed yeah you know i was initially a pretty vocal supporter of what was happening in ferguson 2014 and then what happened in baltimore in 2015 after freddie gray but you know a lot of reporters parachuted in for the week 
inserted themselves into the story, got awards and retweets, and then left and then stopped caring about the city. You know, I, I have a lot of friends who live in Baltimore and I spent a lot of time there. My brother lives there. And I also have friends who are police officers in Prince George's County who were deployed to Baltimore during the riots. And the city was improving every year. It was, its GDP was going up, unemployment was, was down, police brutality was down, murder, homicide, violent crime was going down every year for four or five years until the Freddie Gray riots that, that normalized mass violence, that stigmatized policing. You know, effective policing requires trust between the community and the officers. And if you don't have that kind of community bond, it's hard to do good policing to catch criminals, to work with civilians, to be more proactive in terms of policing. And to see that all crumble and to see journalists parachute in, you know, cheer on the the violence, encourage violence, and then just go back to New York and D.C. and not care about Baltimore again was horrifying to me. And it, it, it as I watched and visited Baltimore over the years and, and saw it deteriorate and see the, the murder rate skyrocket and to see the kind of human carnage from this kind of this form of politics. It, it, I mean, the, the evidence does. I mean, the evidence. Well, you, shape also, me, you know? if you the city I live in the rest of the year in D.C., I mean, things are getting worse and worse um, that, that, that I think we're up a third of murders, up 30 percent this year. The people being killed are not with a few exceptions, of course, and I, I don't mean to mitigate their deaths either, but the people most at risk are poor and black and often That's young right. and often children caught in the crossfire of these, these places. And you can feel, and I, I've felt in my bones, in just living around, I live in a neighborhood where there's a couple of shootings only recently, I felt up until 2020, DC was on the upswing. And since 2020 has been clearly struggling to get get law and order in any kind of coherent shape again. It's as if they- I mean, the same could be said about dozens of cities, Portland, right. Philadelphia, you know, Seattle, I mean, Minneapolis, these are places that had a dramatic turn in violence after 2020, where after the stigmatization of policing, the kind of elite cultural effect of media elites, of cultural elites, of political elites, saying that you shouldn't trust the police, that, that, that police are this evil force, it, it created an opening for this opportunistic violence. For, it's hard to take violence and put it back into the box once it's been released into society. And the people who are encouraging the violence or the, or the, tend to be the people furthest away from the problem who are the least likely to be affected by the violence. Right. And it was the violence, I think, in 2020 that, for me, but also, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to bring myself into this, but definitely... For you, is a moment at which it's quite clear rioting and violence in inner cities does not it does two things. One's it destroys a lot of what's going on there. Uh, it destroys economic activity. It destroys investment, et cetera, et cetera. But it 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 also establishes a new norm, and that new norm can be contagious, and and. And the people who are going to be victims of that are not you sitting in the New York Times editorial office opining that your journalists are at risk from the cops in this sort of preposterous way. You made a simple point. You made a point in public about the fact that, yes, Martin Luther King Jr. did talk about riots as being, what, what's the phrase, the, un, the unspoken... Voice of the unheard. The voice yeah. of the unheard. But in the context of a speech in which he was extremely clear about the dangers and damage that violence can do, and just by pointing out the context 
of that quote, of the complexity of King's thought, you you were basically subjected to, obviously not as serious in any way, but a similar sort of hounding and public scolding as your grandfather had gone through all those those decades before. I'm not saying at the same level, the same intensity, well, but I'm saying the know, same it was, it was, idea. It was multi-factor. I mean, I had kind of previous, previously in the year... Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>